Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. It's near the end of the scriptures. You go to the end of the book of Revelation. It's going to be a few books back from there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. It should be one in the pew. It'll be printed in your bulletin as well. We are going through this book passage by passage, looking at what Paul said to this group in Greece as he went into the first province of Europe, what later would become Europe, this uh, Western movement of Christianity, starts really here in Thessalonica. It was just another Roman province. He was going from place to place, but this, this gospel spread to these people and it had amazing power, and they became a wonderful church that people looked up to. And it's worthwhile for us to look at them who existed in a similar cultural context that we have to say this is how the gospel moves into the places where God wants it to move and it spreads and it comes with power. And so we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 9 this morning through verse 16. Let's read these words. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Just a few years ago, uh, an online humor group called Funny or Die... Uh, it's a great name. We actually have a friend that I went to college with who worked as a writer for them for a number of years, and she may have worked on this sketch, but this group, Funny or Die, they released this video, and they called it the Time Travel Dietitian. And the scene opens up of a husband and wife in 1979, and they're in the kitchen, and the wife has made breakfast for her husband, and she comes in, and she serves this plate of steak and eggs uh, and bread right before him, and then suddenly there's a flash, and out of the closet comes this guy from the future, and he says, wait, I'm from the, I'm from the future. He is the time travel dietitian, and he comes and he says, you're going to want to avoid those eggs. I'm from the future, and I know that they're full of cholesterol, and you haven't studied this yet, but you need to avoid those eggs, and so he leaves. He says, carry on. So the wife comes over and she dumps off the eggs uh, into the trash can and she says, well, we don't want high cholesterol. Then there's a flash again and he appears again and he says, wait, 
We were wrong about the eggs. It turns out there's two different kinds of cholesterol, and one's good and one's bad. Just, just avoid eating the yolks. You just eat the egg whites and you will be fine. He disappears again. And then suddenly there's a flash again, and he appears and he says, wait, turns out that we're wrong about that. This type of cholesterol works differently than we thought. The eggs are probably fine. Just don't eat that steak. Red meat causes heart disease, and you don't want that, so just don't eat the meat and you'll be fine. The wife is about to put the steak into the trash, but the husband holds out his hand. Wait. Let's just wait and see if he appears again. Sure enough. Wait. The steak is okay. The real problem is the bread. Turns out our Paleolithic ancestors didn't eat bread, and this is not good for us in human development. Just avoid eating the bread. Well, the husband by this point is all fed up. He's just eating the bread anyway. Sure enough, he comes back a minute later, all ruffled up, scuffed up, and he says, I've just time-traveled to the Paleolithic age. And it's pretty rough there. The bread's probably fine. (laughs) The last time that he appears, he just says, turns out it's all just genetic anyway. (laughs) Carry on. The, The subtitle of the video is, This is Why Eating Healthy is Hard. I love that title. And it just describes what is true culturally of us right now with so many options and so much noise out there about what is true and what matters and what is actually healthy and what is good and how to raise your kids and how to have a successful work-life balance and all of the noise that we hear. It's why eating healthy is hard. It's why doing anything is hard. It's hard. Because there's so much noise, and to discern what is true and what is meaningful can be very difficult. Is there anything that we can build our lives solidly upon that won't change because of a scientific perspective or a new way of thinking about it? And we need to see that we share a similar cultural moment to the the Thessalonian church as they're in Greece, and they are part of a lot of noise at the the beginning of the New Testament church here, there's just so much happening culturally for them. This was a Greek area. It's in Greece, modern-day Greece, and they would have had the pantheon, the Greek gods, but now it's a Roman province, and so they would have the Roman gods mixed up in there. As we talked about last week, there was also sophistry happening. These sophists would come in and would speak the truth their version of the truth, and they would lead people down a certain path and say, this is the truth. And many of them turned out to be false prophets. They turned out to be people that didn't care about people at all, but just to make money. This is part of the noise, the the landscape that the Thessalonian church was hearing all the time. And it's a similar feeling when I look at this and I read about the Thessalonian church, I think this is like where we are. We can't turn on social media, we can't turn on the TV, we can't you know, look at anything without being told, this is the truth, this is my truth, this works for me, this doesn't work, no longer do this. And the real problem with the noise is that it doesn't work. With our advancements, with, our, with all the truth that's available, with all the information age, 
and on and on and on. Are things getting better? Are we, are we feeling more close to the truth? Are we feeling more fulfilled? Are we feeling like with all these options, I finally know exactly how to live my life? No. It's not working. It doesn't work. And so when Paul commends the Thessalonian church, look at verse 13. This is what he commends them for and he thanks God for. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul is thankful that through all the noise of Thessalonica, through all the sophistry and the gods and the pantheon and the the versions of the truth, that through all that noise, what they heard when Paul spoke was the word of God. He was able to cut through the noise and they received this word. And here's how he knows, because it's at work Within them, it's actually changing their lives. They're they're growing in grace and knowledge of the truth. Things are changing for them. It is a word that works. The gospel of Jesus Christ pierces through the noise and changes us. It is the only word that works. That's what I want us to see today. It is the only word that works. Two simple points this morning. What I want us to look at is what the Word of God is and what the Word of God does or how it works. First, what the Word of God is and what Paul says here is he tells them, first of all, what it is not before he says what it is, what it is not. And what he says it's not, it is not a human invention. Verse 13 again, when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men. There, that word men just means humanity, the, the human word. And so the first distinguishing message that he has for them is that there, is a, there are words out there that are words of men, but you didn't receive what we said as words of men, you received it as the word of God. So the first distinguishing feature is that it comes directly from him, from God. Now, anyone can say that. Anyone can say that I speak for God, and perhaps others in that context did say that, that we also speak for God. And we're not even asking you if you believe that yet, if what the words that Paul says are the very words of God. But first, for you just to see this, that an appeal to higher authority is necessary in a noisy environment. This is where so many sources of the truth, so many things that we would give our lives to are so obviously failing. One human being telling another human being how to live has obvious shortfalls. What if that human being has a different experience? What if they have a different body? What if they have a different family? What if they have a different situation altogether, a different temperament? When one person says, this is how you eat, this is how you raise your kids, this is how you live, this is what meaning is, we should obviously think that there is a, um, a limitation to that. It's one human being to another. If we look to the sources of wisdom for the truth, and the, the source is human, 
They are limited. Paul starts with an appeal that it's not just human wisdom that, you're, that we're talking about here. It's wisdom from God. That's what the message is not. But what it is, is two things. It is a message of God, and it is the person of God. The message, the word of God, he says, you heard it not for the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. We brought, Paul says, a message from God. What is this message? Let me remind you what that message contained, because we can look at the book of Thessalonians and map it onto the book of Acts. Paul went on three missionary journeys. We can see where he went. He followed a very predictable pattern. If we go to Acts chapter 17, we find where he comes to the Thessalonian church, which we've referred to a number of times. And remember, he spent three Sabbath days there. That's it. Less than a month, he was in Thessalonica, preaching three Sabbath days, and he had three points. That's it. That's the only time that he had with this church. And those three points, it says it in Acts chapter 17, were this. He spent his time proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. So in other words, he did what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus after he was raised from the dead. Remember, he, he, he was with those two people who were walking on the road to Emmaus, and he, he showed them the scriptures and how they were about himself. He said, this is what was fulfilled in me. Paul does the same thing in Thessalonica. He proves that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one, that he wasn't just a prophet or a holy man who appeared on the scene. He actually fulfilled all these other things and was the culmination of a long prophecy and a waiting. So he showed them that Jesus was the Christ. The second thing that he did was showed them that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer. There was no way around it. What Jesus did when he died on the cross, he atoned for our sins and there was no other way. And he went back and he showed them probably from the book of Isaiah or other, verse, other passages that we use around Good Friday to show them, hey, this, this servant of God had to be a suffering servant. He had to die to atone for his people this was not something that was added on. It wasn't just a political move. It was actually what God was doing in the world. He had raised up a Christ, and now he had sent him to die. The third thing that he did was prove to them the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus did not stay dead, but his death was real, but his resurrection was the first fruits of what God is doing in the world, resurrecting hearts now, resurrecting bodies later, to bring about his purposes in the world. That is the message. Acts 17 says that's what Paul did. He spoke those three things over three Sabbath days, and then he was run out of town. And then this church was formed. The message was a message from God about Christ. But secondly, the, what the Word of God is, is the person of Christ himself. What Paul gave the Thessalonians was not just not from men and was not just a message from God. He gave them Christ himself because Christ is the Word. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. When Jesus came, the Word came. So when Paul says 
You received the Word of God. He's not saying just that you received the message, but you received Christ Himself, His person. You were united to Him. Now, you may be skeptical about this message and this person. How do we know that this is what the Word of God is? Even the way that Paul talks about it seems on the surface very circular, doesn't it? You received what we said not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. He's just reaffirming that this is the Word of God. It's not Paul just saying the same thing that the other truth-sayers were saying, that this is what's true, and it's true because I say it's true. The proof for Paul is in what happened. The Word which is at work in you. This word came to you above the noise and it changed you. It worked in you. Let's look at what the word of God does. It gives us what the noise often claims to give us but doesn't fully give us. Models for imitation and a model for suffering, enduring suffering. Models for imitation. Paul says that he was a model for them that they could follow. When this word came, they knew what to do, partly because he had shown them what to do. This is how Paul conducted himself. He took responsibility for his conduct. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He didn't want there to be any confusion. Paul gave them a model for how he was working in their midst. It was above reproach. He was not here to mooch. That's partly how you can know that this truth was different for him. So he worked on his own. And then you see what his character was like in verse 10. You were witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Here Paul again is calling on God as witness. That's bold, that's audacity there to say you saw that we were, we were righteous among you. We were blameless. We watched our conduct. We wanted to show you that, that the person who was persecuting the church at one point was now righteous and blameless. This model for imitation. Paul himself. He took responsibility for the leadership in a fatherly way, look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the third family relationship in about four verses that Paul has mentioned. If you remember from last week, he said, we were infants among you. We were gentle infants. And we were like nursing mothers. And now he says, we are like fathers with his children. We loved you. We took responsibility for you. As fathers, as a father, we exhorted, encouraged, and charged you. I love those descriptions because that, that captures what fatherhood is really in its essence when it comes to our children. Exhorting means strongly urging, not making someone do something, but strongly urging them. Encouraging 
is the gentle persuasion. Charging is a requirement. And this is what fatherhood is. When you think about it, we exist, those of us who are fathers, in those tensions. Is this a moment for exhortation? To strongly urge someone? Is Is this a moment for encouragement just to say what you think and gently persuade? Is this a moment for charging? Is this a moment to say, you need to not do this or you need to do this? Paul says, that's the way we were with you. We took that responsibility on. We wanted to love you. So you could see that it was more than just a statement and a message. It actually had changed us. We wanted to be your father. The truth was at stake. And what was at stake was the outcome of your life, which is a worthy walk. Charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul wanted them to walk before the Lord to show them how to live. And we're not talking here, it's important for us to say, about earning God's favor. When he says, for you to walk worthy, it's not as though he's saying you have to do these things so that God will consider you to be worthy. That's backwards. What the scriptures teach us is that a worthy walk before the Lord reveals what is already true about our hearts. And so he's saying, we exhorted you to live into what you had already believed, that God had done these things for you, and so that your life would reflect that. This is not about you proving your worth. Otherwise, you would have received glory. But he says here, this is for God's own kingdom and his glory. This is the work that he was doing in you. So he wanted to show them himself as a model of change, of imitation. But then he also says that they have models not only for that, for walking worthy, but for suffering. Look at verse 14 with me. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposes all, and oppose all mankind. It says you're to be identified now with the other churches who have suffered. And he, he says to the Thessalonian church, and he says to us, who are also in an environment of noise, when you hear what the word of God is and you believe it, you place yourself in a long line of sufferers. You're in good company. The Jews who persecute you, he says to the Thessalonian church, are the same ones who have persecuted other churches. And they're the same ones who crucified Christ. And they're the same ones who, before that, drove out the prophets and drove me out of town. Now, you are identified with the persecuted prophets. You have a model for suffering. He has extremely harsh words for those who persecute, in verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. He says this, those who persecute the church are so confidently doing so now will not last. 
because of the wrath of God will be poured out on them. He speaks in past tense there. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. It's a prophetic past. He's saying something that's going to happen in the future, but it's so certain that, it's, that he speaks about it in past tense, the way that we might say something like, greed has destroyed this com- country. And even if we don't mean that the country is falling apart right this moment, we, we think it's so certain in the future because of this one thing, and that's the way that Paul speaks here. He says, look, the end is there. The writing is on the wall. But you are the ones who are identified, Thessalonian church, with the prophets and with Christ and with his resurrection. But it's a reminder to us that you cannot escape having enemies as a Christian. There are enemies then and there are enemies now. Still, the world, the flesh, and the devil, those three classic enemies, are at work in the world that we live in. And there are plenty of people, plenty of enemies to the church who want our faith to be diminished, maybe even outlawed. And let's not forget that what, where Paul was, what he said is, I came in the midst of great conflict into this church. He had just been put in prison in Philippi. He moved from Philippi to Thessalonica, and then he got run out of Thessalonica. This was his experience. This was his world. It was a world of suffering and conflict. We need to be reminded that our peaceful acts of worship this morning are the historical exception not the norm. Because often the gospel comes with great conflict. But Paul's main point here is to show them that they are to be identified with Christ and the churches and the prophets and with himself, that their suffering is proof of God at work within them. I heard a quote this week that's just been staying with me all week. G.K. Beale said, Suffering is the stadium where the Christian race is run. Suffering is the stadium where the Christian race is run. That's powerful. All we want to do is run away from suffering. We want it to be behind us. But what he was reminding us is we can't because it's all around the track. It's where the race has started, and it's where the race is finished. And we we have breathers, and we have moments where, where things are good and promising, but we can't outrun it. It's all around the track. And so our story is the story of what Christ, he came and he suffered, and then he was brought into the kingdom. This is our story as well. It is suffering. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But notice the comfort of it is this. Noticing and enduring suffering is how we know the word is at work within us. It is the proof that this bit of noise rises above all the rest. That everything else we hear may have a place, but it doesn't have this privileged place of being able to shape us and change us. 
Because every bit of noise out there really boils down to a promise for these two things that we've just talked about, the things that are at work within us. The promise of every bit of human wisdom out there is this. Here's how you live, and here's how you avoid or minimize suffering. That's what we want. That's what we try to live for. Here, I want a model for living, and I want a model for, for escaping suffering. But do anything of those out there work? What does it produce? What is working within us? I know for myself and probably I think for most of you that whatever noise is out there has not produced peace, comfort, lasting security, lasting joy. Would Paul be able to commend us this morning that in the midst of this great noise, we heard what was the true word of God, not the wisdom of men, but what it really is, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would receive Christ as the Thessalonians did, as the true word of God, because the difference between this message and all the noise really comes down to this. This message gives us what we can't make ourselves. It gives us what our hearts desires without us being able to do it ourselves. What Paul tells us about is Christ. And Christ is the empowering presence, not just a message from God but when we have Christ himself, when we are in him, we've been united to him, then we are worthy before God. We walk worthy because we walk with Christ. Being united with him means that our life is hidden with him. That when God sees us, he sees his beloved son. And yes, we need exhortation and we need encouragement and we need to be charged sometimes, but we are worthy because of Christ and so we ask ourselves, what, if, what is my life worthy of? What am I trying to live worthy of? Am I trying to live worthy of Instagram? Am I trying to live worthy of success? Am I trying to live worthy of the approval of others? What is the, the worth that I am seeking? The Christian message that rises above all the noise is this, your worth alone is found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. And when you unite your life with him, he gives you a model for living. Here's how to live. Here's a worthy manner, righteous and blameless. And you go back and you see what Christ taught us, who is the word, what Paul modeled. We give our lives to studying this word as a model for life and say, I want to be worthy of that because of what he, that he has made me worthy. But it also gives you a model for suffering. And the model for suffering is not that we escape it, that we diminish it or minimize it. It's that we endure it with God because he is the suffering one. He is identified in our sufferings. Again, when we are united with Christ, we not only have a model for life, we have a model for suffering. Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. He is the one who went to the cross on our behalf. He knows suffering, and he has promised to do something about it. It's all around the track. You can't escape it, but you can endure it with God. 
who also suffers on our behalf. My hope is this morning we can hear, like Paul said to the Thessalonians, can we hear above everything else? What is my life trying to be worthy of? Well, let's identify with Christ, and then He will make us worthy of God. Let's pray.